morning. It's so good to see all our bright, shining faces today. Good to have you, those of you here with us online. Thank you for joining us this morning. You know, I got here this morning. Isn't it great to see some of the snow melting away? Those piles of snow are about you know, half to third of the size. I looked at the back door of the kitchen over here, and there's, uh, there's rocks instead of three feet of snow, snow drifts. It's great. You know, but one of the things that drives me crazy about this, this is kind of the, the, the OCD in me. I, I pulled up in the parking lot, and I pulled into a parking spot, and as I'm looking at all the snow, it it's kind of has all these black flecks all over it, and as all that melts, it just get, that the one part of the melting snow that, I, that drives me crazy is just what was so white and pure and clean is now, yeah, we've got to wait a couple more weeks before that goes away, don't we? You know, worldwide, you know, wherever you go on the globe, it's, it's amazing how people love purity when it comes to the things and the people that they surround themselves with. For example, if, uh, if you probably heard down in Texas this last week, it got pretty cold. Um, pipes were freezing. It's not that it's colder down there than it is here. It's just that they don't build their houses the same way because they haven't needed to for, for 70 years. And so pipes start freezing. There's no insulation. And uh, people are boiling their water. There's just something about having contaminated water that poisons you that, that makes you want to seek for something pure. And so people, just like they did back in the frontier days, they're, they're boiling their water down there. Uh, some of you have a different drink of choice. I know uh, some of you have your Mountain Dews with you this morning. A lot of you are nice coffee connoisseurs. A few of you like Pepsi and Coke. But um, what would it be like if I, if I, unknowing to you, took that cola product of your choice and switched it out? And replaced it with tab. How many of you remember tab from the 80s? Yeah, one calorie. Woo! I'm sorry, but if I'm going to have something that's sweet and, and supposed to be a Coca-Cola product, I want pure sugar. Uh, it, it needs to taste like something. There's a reason that stuff's not on the shelf anymore. I heard they're trying to bring it back, and I said, just that's not going to last. It's nasty, horrible stuff. Uh, many of you are getting ready to plant your crops, your gardens. Angie started her uh, little greenhouse garden this week. And um, if I offered to sell you seed, first of all, you probably wouldn't buy it from me anyway, right, Danny? Um, but if I said, I'm offering you seed and it's 95% pure, only 5% is loaded with weeds. Pretty good deal? <laughs> Not the kind of seed you want to buy, is it? We want purity in the things that are around us. And the same thing with relationships. Uh, can you imagine a loved one coming to their their spouse, and saying, I'm yours. I, I love you. you I'm, I'm, I'm yours for life. And we are together, and we are, uh, I, I'm committed to you. Except for every fourth Thursday. Every fourth Thursday, I go to Las Vegas. What stays in, happens in Vegas stays in Vegas. I'm going to go where I want, sleep where I want, do what I want. I'm yours completely, except for just that one Thursday a month. You know, people value purity in the things and the persons that they surround themselves with. We expect it in our water. We expect it from the food that's served to us. We expect it when we plant our fields, and we expect purity in our relationships. And I expect purity in my snow. How much more so does our Jesus expect purity in our relationship with Him? Can you imagine what He feels like if we say, Jesus, I'm yours. I'm all yours. I, I want this relationship with You. I want to serve You with all my heart, all my soul, and all my mind, except for every fourth Thursday night. That's kind of my night with my guys. That's when I go do my thing. Jesus values purity as well. In our study of the seven churches of Revelation, we've visited three of the seven thus far, and we've encountered the faithful church in Ephesus. We saw the persecuted church in Smyrna. We saw the compromised church, but today we find a message to the impure church, the church of Thyatira. It struggled with purity. And so as Jesus addresses this congregation, he counsels regarding four qualities, four qualities in this passage that should Im- Im- inspire purity in the disciple of Jesus Christ. Significantly, however, there's four qualities which we find, these four qualities are qualities we find in Jesus. These aren't four qualities that he says, these need to happen in you before I do anything for you. He says, this is who I am. You're going to find these four qualities in me. And because you find these four things in me, then that should motivate a response from you. Jesus presents Himself as God and He reveals Himself in a way that should cause us to heed our call to a purity in our relationship with Him. 
I've asked Lee if he would come forward and, and do the, uh, offer the Scripture reading for us this morning from Revelation chapter 2, verses 18-29. to 29. So if you would stand with us in honor of God's Word as we read this with Lee. And to the angel of the church in Theotira write, the words of the Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire, and whose feet are like burnished bronze. I know your works, your love and faith and service and patient endurance, and that your latter works exceed the first. But I have this against you, that you tolerate that woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. I gave her time to repent, but she refuses to repent of her sexual immorality. Behold, I will throw her onto a sickbed, and those who commit adultery with her I will throw into great tribulation, unless they repent of her works. And I will strike her children dead. And all the churches will know that I am he who searches mind and heart, and I will give to each of you according to your works. But to the rest of you in Theotira, do not hold this teaching who have not learned what some call the deep things of Satan. To you I say, I do not lay on you any other burden. Only hold fast to what you have until I come. The one who conquers and who keeps my works until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron, as when earthen pots are broken in pieces, even as I myself have received authority from my Father. And I will give him the morning star, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Lee, thank you very much. And you may be seated. As we turn our attention to God's Word and and examining what God has given to us today, I just invite you to, let's go to prayer uh, as we begin our our time in His Word. Father in in Heaven, we, we thank You for the Scripture. We thank You that You've given us these ancient words Ancient words that are just as pertinent, just as applicable, and just as appropriate for our lives today as they were for the people of Thyatira almost 2,000 years ago. We thank You that You love us so much that You've invested in this into our lives so that we might know You, that we might know who You are as our God, that we might know who we are as Your people, that we might know what You've called us to be. Father, I pray that You would teach us to pursue purity in our lives in our relationship with You. And Father, I pray that You would use this time as we study Your Word to transform us. Might Your Holy Spirit convict us of sin. Might He shed light where there needs to be light. Might He fill us as we walk in obedience with You. It's in Jesus' name we pray and ask these things. Amen. Well, as we uh, make our way around these seven churches, if you've been with us this last few weeks, uh, you know that we've been looking at seven letters that Jesus wrote to seven churches in, in ancient Asia Minor, which is modern-day Turkey. And, and as you um, come to those seven churches, I'd, I'd like you to imagine with me that you are the carrier, you are the one who has been entrusted with the scroll that's going to be passed around from each of these cities. And so you're on the island of Patmos with John, and, and he's just had this vision of things that were and things that are and things that are to come. And he's written these things down on a scroll as a faithful witness. And with these, these writings of things that are to come, he includes seven letters that Jesus wrote to seven specific churches, but that he wants all churches and all individuals to listen to. And he wrote all these things down on a scroll, and then John passes it to you and he says, take this, take this scroll, or maybe there's seven of them, and he's already made copies for each of the churches. And he says, it, it, you need to make good time, and you need to get these to these churches because they need encouragement. And so you would go from the island of Patmos, this small uh, penal colony where, where John was a prisoner, and he would have, um, you would take a boat and about 40 to 45 miles east across the Aegean Sea. As you come across the Aegean Sea, you would come first to the port of Ephesus. And there at Ephesus, you would see this grand city, and you'd make your way through the, um, uh, the, the road that goes along there. Maybe you're coming at night, and you see all those lanterns that are lit everywhere, those lampstands. And, and then you'd come to the church, and you'd find the, the pastor there, and you'd hand him the first scroll, or maybe you'd hand him the scroll, and, and you'd take a few days to, for him to make his own personal copy for the church of Ephesus. From there, after staying for a night or two or three, you would 
Uh, you would then go from Ephesus, and you'd either take a horse or a cart, maybe go with a caravan, more than likely as a messenger, you'd be running or walking the distance on your own. Uh, but from Ephesus, you would next go to the church of Smyrna. Now, uh, if you can put it in terms of, of here today, if you started off in Davenport, down at the river, and you went from Davenport, you would, you'd cut across the land, you wouldn't follow the Mississippi, but you'd come up, probably come towards DeWitt and then over to, to Clinton. If you walked that distance or ran that distance, that's what it would be like from going from Ephesus to Smyrna. And so you, the messenger, come with the scroll and you arrive at Smyrna and you hand them this letter and they make a copy and perhaps you're reading and, and hearing this, this book of Revelation for the second time yourself. And the church of Smyrna sees the letter that's written to them, the persecuted church. After they've had time to, to get their copy of, of the book of Revelation, you're going to go from Smyrna and make your way to the next place, which would have been Pergamum. It'd be the equivalent of continuing to follow the river road from, from uh, Clinton, and, and if you go all the way north along the Mississippi and you came to Dubuque, that'd be the same distance from Smyrna to Pergamum. It'd be a little bit of a, a walk or run, but you'd get there eventually, and they would get their copy, and the church would open it up, and, and they would receive this letter that was written specifically to them as they discover themselves as the corrupted, uh, compromised church. Today we're just going to make one more circuit, because I know you're starting to get tired from all this running, and so we're just going to go to one more place. This time we're going to cut inland, away from, away from the water, uh, just as they would cut um, a little bit to the east and go inland, and they're, we're going to come to Thyatira. It'd be the same distance from Dubuque to Manchester, so a little bit of a shorter run this time. But from Pergamum to Theatira, there'd be another, another um, few dozen miles, and, and you would come to this church and, and they would read the book of Revelation and this letter to themselves, the impure church. And so what would you see when you arrived at Theatira? Perhaps you got there in the middle of the day and, and you'd come in when the marketplace is busy. And if you pass through the marketplace, one of the things you'd find would be lots of purple garments and purple cloth. Uh, Thy- Thyatira, Thyatira was well known for its purple dyes. Worldwide, people would buy these purple products from Thyatira. In fact, in the Bible, if you turn to Acts 16, you don't have to go there right now, but you'll read of a woman named Lydia. And Lydia was living in a city called Philippi. But do you remember where Lydia was from? She was from... The- the church that we're looking at today, the church of Thyatira. Actually, she wasn't from the church there. She was one of the first believers to come to Christ in Europe. And that church came about later on. But she was from this town of Thyatira. And so uh, Thyatira was located a little bit more inland than the first three churches. We've gone north and a bit to the east. The city doesn't carry as much history as Ephesus and Smyrna and Pergamum. But it was famous for its not only its purple dyes and its purple products, but Thyatira was also very well known for its organized trade unions. It was a very well-organized business city. And they had created a system for themselves that would make it very profitable for you to do business from and in Thyatira. However, this would have been a problem for, um, for Christians as, as earning was very difficult. It, it was hard to make an earning and do business unless you were part of one of those trade guilds. This wouldn't have been a problem except for the fact that the the guilds required participation in certain festivities. Specifically, on a regular basis, each one of these guilds would have these feasts. And at those feasts, they would eat meat that was sacrificed to idols. And there would be idol worship associated with the dinners themselves. And so, while it was a feast, it was kind of like going down with all your friends to a nice restaurant. It it was a little bit more than that. It was a semi-religious activity in which Christians would have had to compromise their faith and, and they would have had to get involved in this idol worship and, and eating meat sacrificed to idols. Many Christians may have compromised and figured that involvement in going to the feast was just one of the things that was necessary in order for them to earn, earn a living. And so certainly Jesus would understand and this impurity crept into their lives along with all the other things that would have been associated, associated with these feasts and the business guilds that they were a part of. Now, like other cities, Thyatira also had its own gods. Uh, Originally, the city had been founded as a shrine uh, to the Lydian god Tyremus. In Greek mythology, his name is Apollos. A lot of you have probably heard of him. He's the sun god. Again, the church of Thyatira has struggled with purity. It struggled in, in remaining pure in their relationship with Christ. 
And so as Jesus addresses this congregation, he counsels them regarding four qualities that should inspire purity in the disciples of Jesus Christ. And he starts by telling them about himself. He says, these are the words of, again, that's like saying, thus says the Lord. Uh, If a prophet said that in the Old Testament, it, it would be, pay attention to this. This is important. God himself is saying this to you. Jesus says this of himself. Thus, these are the words of the Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. The first thing we find, the first of the four qualities that Jesus presents to us regarding purity is that we have a God whose judgments are righteous. We have a God who judges, and His judgments are righteous. We usually talk about Him being a loving God, and we like all the warm, fluffy things, but we don't like talking about God's judgment and His discipline, do we? That, that God cares about sin, and he, he demands purity in our relationship with Him. He's a God who judges, and judgment begins with the church of God. But His judgments are righteous. He calls Himself the Son of God. Now, if you've ever read the Gospel of John, or 1 John, or 2 John, or 3 John, any of the writings of John, does he ever talk about the Son of God? Say yes. Yeah. All the time. You read the Gospel of John, it's one of his favorite titles for Jesus. This is the Son of God. You read the 1 John, this letter to the letters probably to some of these same churches, and he, he speaks constantly of, of the Son of God. It's his favorite title for Jesus. 46 times in the New Testament, the title Son of God is used. Yet in the book of Revelation, this is the only time John uses the, word, the phrase Son of God. And it's significant that, he, that Jesus used that title of Himself when speaking to the church of Thyatira. You see, in Thyatira, there were two who held the title Son of God. There were two individuals that were called the Son of God there in, in this city. And they were Apollo, the Son God, and Caesar. And both Caesar, the emperor, and Apollo, this god that they worshipped, were considered to be sons of Zeus. They were uh, the sons of the king of the gods. And so they both would have been involved in, in, in the worship and in the religious system, uh, and specifically in the trade guilds that any business person would have had to have been a part of in order to have a successful, thriving business. The worship of Apollo and, and burning incense to Caesar would have been a common practice. And so Jesus first, He reminds these Christians who the true Son of God is. There is absolutely no substitute for Jesus Himself. And He wants them to remember who He is. He describes Himself as having eyes of a flame of fire. Uh, In these uh, pictorial, um, figurative pictures of Jesus, uh, He's described in ways that help us to understand what His character is like. Described in a way that helps us to understand what are the things that He values. With eyes of a flame like fire, he's seen as a person, as a God who knows all things and he sees all things. He's not a God who's stumbling around in the dark looking for a flashlight or a torch to help light his way. He sees it as it is. His eyes penetrate into all things. He's described as being a, a God who has feet like fine brass, burnished bronze. His steps are pure. Jesus himself is pure in the way that he walks. And so because He is pure, and because His judgment is pure, and because He is a God who judges, but His judgments are righteous, Jesus calls the church to purity. But before He does that, and before He calls out their sin, He first presents Himself as the one who is pure. Listen to what John wrote in 1 John chapter 1, uh, verses 5-7. through Right before He talks about confessing your sin, he, he talks about this, about Jesus. This is the message we have heard from Him and proclaim to you. That God is light. And in Him is no darkness at all. He's talking about Jesus' purity, isn't it? If you want to understand who Jesus is, there's no darkness at all. This This is one who is pure. And He is pure light. If we say we have fellowship with Him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as He is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, His Son, cleanses us from all sin. There's no moral compromise found in our Lord Jesus Christ. There's no point in Jesus' ministry and Jesus' character where He says, I'm pure, but there's this one thing I really like to do. 
there's this one part of me that, you know, I'm just going to keep this hidden from everybody else because he is absolutely committed and faithful in his purity. And he is faithful to us before he demands that we would be absolutely committed and faithful to him. So after describing himself, he then proceeds to tell them, I, I know your works. And, and here he shows us that we have a God who discerns our deeds. Not only is He a God whose judgments are right, but we have a God who, who discerns our deeds. The first thing we see is that He knows the quality of our works. Uh, look at how he, he, he describes this to the, um, to the church. As He's writing to them, He says, I know your works, your love and faith and service and patient endurance. Here was a church that, that loved each other. Here was a church that showed faith in their walk. Here was a church that was committed to, to service in their community. This was an active church that was doing the work of the Lord. They were busy. They were busy about doing the things that God had called them to do. Not only that, but they, they walked in patient endurance. They probably suffered because of their faith. There are many in the church who said, I, I can't go to those banquets where they worship these gods. I'm not going to be a part of that. And so there were many people in the church that were patient in their, their endurance. He says, I know the quality of your works. But not only does he know the, the quality of our, our, our works, he also knows the quantity of our works. He, he notes to the church of Thyatira, he says, the things that you're doing now, they exceed the stuff you did at first. You came to know me, and you were excited about your walk with the Lord. You were excited about what this new Christian faith meant to, to your everyday life. And so you served me, and you walked with me, and you did these things, and you served me in your church and in your community. And people looked at your life and went, there's something different about that individual. A lot of people... Time goes on and things kind of wane and they get comfortable in their relationship with Jesus. Not, not in Thyatira. They, they continued to serve. They continued to work. They continued to do the work that God had called them to do. You know, in a church like DEFC, it's, it's exciting to look around and to see a lot of programs where people are actively involved. We have our Awana program. We have an active youth group. We have our work days. We have different uh, projects that our, our kids are involved in that many of you are involved in. Uh, a lot of you ladies got together just to encourage some people that are locked in their homes right now. And, and you've been, uh, you made some cookies that you've been sending out and are still going out. You're a church that welcomes. I, I hear what people say about you. They say, what a welcoming church. I came and visited your church and I, I have never been in a church where I felt so welcomed by people that I have n I've never met them in my life. Your church is known for your encouragement. In 2 Peter chapter 4, verse 9, the Apostle said, for if these qualities are yours and increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. And regarding the qualities that he was writing to them there, he wanted them to increase in those things in the same way God would want you to increase in the things that you do. Continue in that service. The church of Thyatira was a church that continued in their relationship with him and in serving him. However, in Thyatira, there were a few problems as well. And Jesus goes on and He says, I have this against you. Look at verses 20-23 to once again. He says, I have this against you, that you tolerate that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing My servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. I gave her time to repent, but she refuses to repent of her sexual immorality. Behold, I will throw her onto a sickbed and those who commit adultery with her I will throw into great tribulation unless they repent of her works. And I will strike her children dead. And all the churches will know that I am He who searches mind and heart. And I will give to each of you according to your works. You see, specifically, the problems that were in this church related to one individual that Jesus calls Jezebel. Now, I doubt that she, that was actually her name. Jezebel in that day was not a popular name probably. Just like none of us are naming our children Jezebel today. Um, if you are a girl and you're named Jezebel, typically you're going to go, I'm going to go by my middle name because um, there's something about that one that just has bad connotations. And there's a reason for that. If you go to the Old Testament, you find the story of Jezebel there. And Jezebel was the daughter of the king of the Sidonians. And this king had married her to Ahab, the king of Israel, who was already evil. He was already a wicked king. But after he married Jezebel, he starts worshiping the god Baal. And she... Th she um, introduced the idolatry into the northern kingdom of Israel like they had never seen before. She threatened to kill Elijah after she had all the prophets of God killed. 
And she was also the one that when, do you remember the story when Elijah, when not Elijah, when Ahab was looking out his window, he looked down and he saw a garden, a vineyard. And he went, wow, that one's beautiful. I want that. And so being the good king that he was, he went to the person and says, hey, I'll buy this from you. I really want your vineyard. I'll pay good money for your vineyard because this is my family inheritance. This is mine. I'm not selling. And Ahab went and he pouted in his room. And so Jezebel said, what are you pouting for? I'll go get it for you. And so she goes and she has the guy killed and brings the vineyard and says, here you go. He got a new vineyard for you. Happy day. And he enjoyed his vineyard. Uh, she was corrupt. Ahab was corrupt. In fact, Elijah went to Ahab and he told him in 1 Kings 21, verses 20-26, to 26, listen to the description that Elijah uh, has when he confronts this king. He says, I have found you because you have sold yourself to do evil in the sight of the Lord. Behold, I will bring calamity on you. I will take away your posterity and will cut off from Ahab every male in Israel, both bond and free. I will make your house like the house of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, and like the house of Baasha, the son of Ahijah, because of the provocation with which you have provoked me to anger and made Israel sin. And concerning Jezebel, the Lord also spoke, saying, The dogs shall eat Jezebel by the wall of Jezreel. The dogs shall eat whoever belongs to Ahab and dies in the city, and the birds of the air shall eat whoever dies in the field. But there was no one like Ahab. That's usually something you want to hear about yourself, isn't it? There was nobody like Todd. Oh yeah, what a guy. There was nobody like Craig. Uh, That's not the words you want to hear for Ahab. Listen to what it says about him. There was no one like Ahab who sold himself to do wickedness in the sight of the Lord. Because Jezebel his wife stirred him up, and he behaved very abominably in following idols, according to all that the Amorites had done, whom the Lord had cast out before the children of Israel. You kind of get the idea, don't you? Ahab was wicked. And Jezebel, when he married her, it just got worse and worse and worse. And here was a woman who who brought Israel into even greater sin. And so, as Jesus is writing to this church in, in Thyatira, he uses very strong words, and he compares this woman who was in the church to, to Jezebel. Apparently, she had become involved in the leadership. She called herself a prophetess. Um, but she wasn't leading people to purity and to a walk with Jesus Christ. Uh, this woman was leading people in the church astray, even as Jezebel had done with, with Ahab and Israel. And, and Christians were actually involved in adultery that was being promoted within the church itself. They were being involved in idolatry, probably in relation to a lot of these trade guilds. There probably was something where there was a financial gain for the church, and she was getting people involved in these trade guilds and letting them know, you know, this is okay, and you can be a part of this. And Jesus understands. We don't know all the specifics of how that played out, but probably was connected in, in those, to those trade guilds in a way and that it required the people uh, to be involved in, in sin. And so Jesus threatens judgment on this woman and on her children, who are, that is, her followers. And that brings us to the third quality that Jesus presents regarding Himself. And that's that He is a God who will not let us sin successfully. I want you to think about that. Jesus is a God who will not let you sin successfully. There are times in our lives where we stumble, we fall. But in those times, He doesn't let us continue on without disciplining us. Without coming into our lives and and saying, something has to change here. And I'm going to do what it takes to get your attention. This is what He said in Hebrews chapter 12. Uh, The author of Hebrews wrote to the people, he says, My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by Him. For the Lord disciplines the one He loves. And He chastises every son whom he receives. Does Jesus love you? We believe that, don't we? Yes, he does. Part of that love that he has for us is the discipline that he offers to us. And so when sin creeps into my life, Jesus isn't just going to sit by going, eh, I love him, so I'm not going to, I'm not going to do anything about this. We're just going to kind of let it go and, 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 you know, eventually he'll do what's right. No. He's not going to let me sin successfully without coming into my life, and doing something about it. But there's four things that we see about His discipline. Throughout Scripture, we see that that Jesus, when He disciplines us, He disciplines us patiently. He disciplines us appropriately. He disciplines the inward thoughts and the motives. And He disciplines correctly. 
You see, each of us as parents, we, we discipline our children. If you love your child, you're going to discipline them. You're going to, to bring discomfort and some sort of thing that makes them uncomfortable and, and causes pain in their life. Because you care about your child, whether they, they love, uh, if, if you love them, you're going to, to, to do that because you want them to grow. And you do so patiently. But sometimes we don't do so patiently, do we? Sometimes that discipline comes in, we get frustrated. And that discipline's not what it needs to be. So maybe we send the kids to their room without supper and we get a little excessive on something. Or maybe, maybe we yell. Or maybe we say something that, that we regret later on and we have to go and apologize to our children for the way that we carried out that discipline. Not so with Jesus. When Jesus disciplines us, it's with patience. He disciplines appropriately. Sometimes the uh, crime doesn't fit the bill for us, doesn't it? Sometimes we, we, we do things in a way that, that we go, look back on it later and we go, that, that's not how that should have been. I, I love the story of Angie's grandmother. She had how many brothers and sisters? Five. And so once in a while, her, her parents in their frustration would line all the kids up and all the kids would get a spanking. And Angie's grandmother had a practice of standing at the end of the line and, and then before it got to her, she would start weeping and wailing and run to the beginning of the line like she'd already got punished and she would get out of, out of the, the discipline herself. But sometimes, everybody gets punished because somebody did it and so everybody's going to pay. That's not how Jesus disciplines us. Well, see, when Jesus disciplines, it's, a, it's appropriate. One of the other problems with our discipline is sometimes you can't read the mind. Sometimes you don't know the heart of the individual. And our, our children may may stumble and fall and do something that needs correction, but it may not come from a wicked heart that's trying to sin. It just might be the foolishness of a child who just needs to grow and learn what's right and wrong. You see, Jesus understands not only the things that He sees and that we do, He also understands the motives of our heart. He understands our inward thoughts. And when He disciplines us, He disciplines us correctly. God wants us to walk with Him. God wants us to have purity in our relationship with Him. And so because He loves you as an individual and because He loves the church, He he will discipline us as Christians because we're His children. Because He loves the church, He'll he'll discipline the church as well. Um, He is passionate about the purity of His church. And when the church continues to embrace sin and in a church like Thyatira where sin was actually being promoted within the church, Jesus says, I'm going to come and I'm going to do something about this. And for the church of Thyatira, in their instance, He says, there's there's a discipline coming. And it sounds like there was a literal sickness that came upon the people in the church. And He says, those who followed this Jezebel, I'm going to purify the church and this is how I'm going to do it. But he says to the rest of you in verse 24, but to the rest of you in Theatira who who do not hold this teaching, who have not learned what some call the deep things of Satan, to you I say, I do not lay on you any other burden. Only hold fast what you have until I come. You see, Jesus disciplines correctly. There's none of this. There's none of this. um, You know, I'm just going to line you all up, and I'm not sure who did what, but I'm just going to punish all of you. He disciplines us correctly and, and appropriately. God has called us to purity in life's circumstances. As you go to work each week, each one of you face different temptations, different trials. Some of you face temptations of, of laziness at your job. Some of you have a temptation to pilfer from, from where you work and, and glean from the top of things. Some of you have uh, temptations in the realm of, of sexual purity at work. Some of you work in environments that are, are, are challenging to be honest and truthful. Whatever your circumstances and wherever you work, God has called you to a purity in your walk with Jesus Christ. And that should be reflected in the way you work. Same thing with school. You guys in public schools and in home schools and private schools, there are challenges that you face. Temptations that you face in your school. And, and, and it, it makes being a Christian um, difficult. Because there are things that are introduced there that are contrary to your faith. That sometimes you have to take a stand and say, no, I, I can't be a part of that. I am a follower of Jesus Christ and, and I will not do that. I will not read that. I will not watch that. I will not practice and be a part of that program. I can't. Same thing with home. Home, you face a different kind of temptation, don't you? 
In our home, we have our relationships with our family members and we let our guard down. And when you come home, you, people see who for you really are some, who you are for you, who you really are. Boy, that did not come out right. But, but you get the idea. In our home, sometimes our sin looks very different. And our family sees a whole different person, a whole different side of who we are. But Jesus says, I demand purity in your homes, in your relationship with your spouse, in your relationship with your children and your parents. I want you to walk with me and your relationship with me should be so profound that it impacts the relationship in your home and the way you treat the person that sits next to you across from the table. Jesus knows our works. He knows the things that compromise our purity, the purity in our relationship with Him and the purity in our witness for Him. And my friends, He will not let us sin successfully. But note also that Jesus is not only a God who disciplines His children when they sin, but also we have a God who shares the rewards. We have a God who shares the reward. Look at the last few verses. He goes on, and like all all the different churches, there's a section where He introduces this is who the letter's to. Uh, This is who the letter is from, and he describes himself. He says, I know your works. I have this against you. Uh, But then the last couple parts of the letter, he always includes a section on on promises for the one who conquers. Now, before we read again this text, uh, again, who is the conqueror in this context? In the Gospel of John, that's right. That's right, Leslie. Jesus is the conqueror. Um, In the Gospel of John, we are conquerors not because of how we obey, but we are conquerors because Jesus brings about obedience in our lives. And so, when He's giving these promises, it's not a promise that if you do these things I've been talking about and, and have this obedience, there, there is discipline that we talked about earlier, but for the church of Thyatira, they're not conquerors depending on how they react to everything else earlier in the passage, in the letter. They are conquerors because of their relationship with Jesus. If you have a relationship with Jesus Christ and you believe that He died on the cross for your sins, if you are His disciple, then you are a conqueror in Christ. The obedience then comes as a result of what He has already done in your life. And He gives these promises to the conquerors so that we would have be motivated to godly living as a result of what He has already promised to give us. And so to the church of Theotira, he says, the one who conquers and who keeps my works until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron as when earthen pots are broken in pieces, even as I myself have received authority from my Father. And I will give him the morning star. And so Jesus promises two things for the conqueror. And as we've seen, these promises are not only just for the church of Theotira, but these promises are also for you if you are a believer in Jesus Christ. The first thing that Jesus has promised to you is to share His power. Remarkably, Jesus promises to share His power. Now, in, in the millennial age, we, 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 know, we, we can read about the book of Revelation, and as you read through these chapters, you see a lot of crazy things that are going to happen one day. But after the events of the book of Revelation, Jesus is going to return again, and we are told that He is going to reign physically on this earth for a period of a thousand years. We call it the millennial age. The millennial the millennial kingdom. Jesus is going to reign from Jerusalem over Israel and He's going to rule over the nations. And remarkably, for those who are believers in Jesus Christ and part of the church, Jesus is going to bring us with Him during that time and in our glorified bodies without sin, without the corruption that we have today, you and I will have the opportunity to be a part of ruling in that kingdom. Now, I don't know what the details of that are going to look like. But what Jesus has promised us is that you as a Christian today have a role in His kingdom in the future. That should motivate us to faithfulness right now. When I consider that someday I'm going to play a role in this thousand year millennial reign of Christ, that He is going to give me some sort of responsibility in which I will be I will be responsible for leading or ruling or doing something in some way in His administration during that kingdom. Whatever it might be. And my faithfulness today determines the rewards that I have during that period. You know, there's, there's a, a parable in Luke chapter 19. Luke chapter 19, 
Jesus tells the people, he says, as they heard these things, he proceeded to tell them a parable because he was near to Jerusalem and because they supposed that the kingdom of God was to appear immediately. He said, therefore, a nobleman went out into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and then return. Calling ten of his servants, he gave them ten minas. So a really insignificant little piddly piece of money. Ten minas. And he said to them, engage in business until I come. So, so here's Jesus and he says, hey, got a dime for you. You go take this dime and you do something with it. And when I come back, I want to see what you've done with that dime. You think of that and go, a dime. That's not a lot. And that's the point. Jesus is saying, I, I'm going to give you just a little bit and I, and I want you to be faithful with this and you do something with this while I'm away. And he says, engage in business until I come. But the, his citizens hated him and sent a delegation after him saying, we do not want this man to reign over us. When he returned, having received the kingdom, he ordered these servants to whom he had, been, had given the money to be called to him, that he might know what they had gained by doing business. Well, how'd they do? How'd they, how'd they treat that dime that Jesus left them with? The first came before him saying, Lord, your mina has made ten minas more. Here's a dollar. And he said to him, well done, good servant, because you have been faithful in a very little. You shall have authority over ten cities. Now, could you imagine that? Jesus gives you a dime and says, what are you going to do with it? And you bring back a dollar and he says, that's good work. That's really good work. I want you to rule over all ten of these cities over here. The next day comes back and he says, Lord, your mina has made five minas. And he said to him, and you are to be over five cities. Wow. Then another came saying, Lord, here is your mina, which I kept laid away in a, a handkerchief because I was afraid of you because you are a severe man. You take what you did not deposit and reap what you did not sow. He said to him, I will condemn you with your own words, you wicked servant. You knew that I was a severe man, taking what I did not deposit and reaping what I did not sow. Why then did you not put my money in the bank and at my coming I might have at least collected it with interest? I think this parable that Jesus told as he's talking about the kingdom, the people thought the kingdom was coming right then and he knew that he was going to be crucified in about a week. And so he says, here's what the kingdom's like. And I think this is a small picture of what Jesus is talking about when he says this to the church of Thyatira. That you are going to share in his kingdom. That Jesus is going to share his power. And so how does that take place? I, I, I don't know. You know for, maybe for those that do nothing with their spiritual gifts, they go through the Christian life and, and people will go, I, I knew they were Christian. I knew they followed Jesus, but never saw anything in it. Never saw Him doing anything with it. Maybe Jesus says, hey, you're going to rule with me. Take, take Elvira. That's yours. And, and maybe for the one that's faithful, that person that He says, I just want you to, I just want you to hand out bulletins every week. That's your job. I want you to be faithful in that. Maybe it's, it's going and encouraging somebody and sending them a card and nobody ever sees what you do. Maybe, maybe there's a ministry that God has called you to. A spiritual gift that He has entrusted to you. And He says, I want this for you. You be faithful in this little thing. I'm giving you a dime. And sometimes we look at the things that God has called us to do and we think, this is just so insignificant. This is so small. It's so piddly. What's, what difference is this going to make in the world? But Jesus says, I've called you to that. And I want you to be faithful to what I've called you to do. And when that time comes, uh, there's going to be a lot of us that are going to be surprised when we look around and go, that person didn't have a public ministry. That person hardly spoke. That's one of the shyest, quietest individuals I've ever known. And Jesus says, I want you to govern Iowa. I don't know how it works. I, I don't know what that program is going to be like, but if we see what we see the church in Thyatira. Jesus says, I'm going to share my power with you. And the faithfulness that we commit during this life and the purity in our relationship with Him is going to determine those future rewards. But not only does Jesus promise to share His power, but Jesus also promises to share Himself. He talks about how I will, I will give to the conqueror the morning star. Well, who's the morning star? It's Jesus Himself. He is the bright and morning star. He is the picture of our promise and our hope. Randy Alcorn in his commentary on Revelation states that Jesus being seen as the morning star means that the eternal morning is about to dawn. Jesus not only shares all that He has with us, but He shares Himself. We are involved in a relationship with Him. And He's committed to us. And committed to not just letting us be a part of His kingdom, but being a part of Himself as well. 
And of course, he concludes and says, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. If you have ears, and last time we checked, the last few weeks, every single person here does, pay attention. If you can hear these words that we've read today, if you can look on the pages of the Scripture that you have on your lap, and you can read these things, then this isn't just for the church of Theatira. This wasn't just for an ancient church and, and doesn't matter anymore today. He wanted all seven churches to read what was going on to the church of Theatira. And every single individual that heard these words should be reflecting in their own life and saying, how does this impact me? How am I doing the same thing? Where has impurity crept into my life? And now 2,000 years later, Jesus wants the same thing for you. He wants you to hear the words to this ancient church and realize that these words are for you too. Jesus knows all things. And He knows every detail of our life. He is a God who judges and He judges with righteousness. He is a God who shares His reward with us. He is a God who discerns our deeds. He knows every detail of your life. And so what are you accomplishing that will have value at the end of 2021? When you look at the end of this year and you look at what you've done with it, what are you accomplishing today? Are you living with purpose and intent? Are you living today for Jesus' glory and for His honor? Or is it about yourself? Is it all for you? What will have value at the end of your life? What are you doing that has eternal value? You know, I've... I've heard before that there are only two things that are on earth today that are going to last for eternity. There's only two things on earth today that are going to last for eternity. People and God's Word. Everything else is just temporary. And so if, if, if you're into investments, if you're into saving for your retirement, making sure that you get a good interest rate, you're going to look for investments that are, that are good, that are going to bring a good return on things, aren't you? We're only here for a short time. Eternity lasts forever. And so, why don't we look for investments that have eternal value that don't burn up and go away at, as soon as this life and this world are over? The only two things that are going to last for eternity that are on this earth right now are God's Word and people. And so, what might we invest in those things? I ask also, are you compromising with the world? As we consider the purity that Jesus called us, calls us to, each one of us needs to ask personally, am, am I compromising today? Is there sin in my life that I just I tolerate? I say, well, Jesus is just going to look the other way. It's not a big deal. And Jesus says, no, no. I love you. I care about you. And because of that, if there is sin that you are tolerating in your life, I will bring discipline. And it comes in different forms. I know with each of my children, that, that discipline, it, 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 for some of them, it just takes a look. Like, really? Mitch? Are you serious? I didn't have to say the words. And some of my children just melt. Oh, Dad looked at me wrong. And it breaks their heart. And they run away from the sin because they received that kind of discipline. And it broke their heart just to have that look from Dad. And then there's other kids. Yeah. I mean, it takes a lot more than that. Come on, wake up. Wake up. Get, get your attention here. That was me. Jesus does the same thing. For some of us, it just takes a look. You're reading the Bible and you read something and you go, oh, oh, I've been doing this. I never even realized that was sin. And, and, and you got that look from Jesus and it just breaks you. And that discipline, that form is what it takes. And there's others of us. He's going to bring a lot into your life to get your attention. We have to go up and down and up and down and up and down because of but the fact is that He loves you. And if there is sin and that you are tolerating, He will discipline in one form or another. And so do you give in to the world system? Like this church of Thyatira and these followers of Jezebel, do you compromise? Are you blending your Christianity with the idols of this earth? Whether it's the entertainments that you follow, the things that you value more than Jesus, are you compromising with the world? And finally, are you faithful with the little things? Are you being faithful with the little things? Jesus is going to reward you accordingly in the future. 
And again, I don't know the details of that. I don't know what the, the plan is. And, but, but He knows the heart and He knows the intents and He knows the motives and He knows the things that nobody else does. And there will be many who, who we go, wow, that person, whew, they're going to be big in the kingdom of God. And Jesus is going to go, they did it all for themselves. None of that was with pure motives. And a lot of us, I think, are going to be surprised when we see some people and it's just, we're going to go, wow. They're, they're, they're in the sanitation department in Elvira, not, not ruling over the town. How big is Elvira? Ten people? And there will be some that we look at and we go, who were they? Never even knew their name. They, they sat in church beside me every single week, but they were so quiet, I, I never even knew their last name. And Jesus is going to go, well done. Very well done. You took that dime that I gave to you, and wow, look what you did with that little thing. What has Jesus given to you? We live in a time where things are changing, and there are challenges to living out your faith. What are you personally doing with what God has given to you in the time that you have here on this earth? Be faithful with the little things. Don't compromise with the world and the things that it offers to you. And live today for His glory to accomplish the things that have eternal value that Jesus says, I love this. Father, we thank You for Your Word. We thank You for this letter to the church of Thyatira. And as challenging as, as these things were for them and, and probably hard for them to hear, I know that for some of us we hear these words and we, we know that this is written directly to us as well. We have ears to hear and we, we see our own personal lives and our own walk with You. And there's some of us here today that are going, that's me. There's so much impurity in my walk with Jesus. I, I, this is not right. I know there's some here today that, that You are disciplining. Your, your Spirit is convicting their hearts. I pray that in these moments, right in here today, that those individuals would say no more. I'm going to follow Jesus no matter what it costs me. No matter how much it hurts. Because I know that the things that are of eternal value are much more important than the temporary pleasures and the temporary um, rewards that I receive from all these other things of this life. I pray for those individuals here who are feeling that conviction today and I pray that they would walk with You. I pray that they would follow the commands of 1 John 1 and confess their sin. And I thank You that You offer to them forgiveness and a restoration of that relationship. Father, I pray for the individual here who, who is looking at their ministry and their life and going, I, I'm, I'm just a quiet person. That Who am I? And I pray that You'd help them to understand the, the things that you, have, that you have trusted to them and might they be faithful in using those gifts and those abilities and those talents that You've entrusted to them I pray for those that are, that are in more public view of everybody. I, I pray that You would guard their hearts and You would still take these small things, this little dime that You've given to them as well. It may look bigger to us, but in the scope of eternity, we're, we're all just small servants that are serving You, doing our best to do what we can with that mind that You've entrusted. I, I pray that You would keep us from pride. I pray that You would keep us from looking at ourselves and thinking, look how great I am. It might be that from the focus of our lives and intent beyond making sure everybody knows how great Jesus is. Lord, teach us to value the things that You value. I pray that You'd help us to invest our, our lives today in those things that will last for eternity. And so show us the people around us that You want us to invest our lives in today. I pray that You would Help us to understand Your Word and that we would hide it in our hearts and that we would commit ourselves to living for and, and by this book so that our lives would glorify and honor You. Please fill us with Your Spirit as we walk from here. Might our walk reflect the purity that You have called us to. In Jesus' name we ask this. Amen.